Business Women Rock, episode 22. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast. I'm so excited that you're here today. Just want to take a quick second to say thank you to our sponsor, audible.com. Did you know that all of these incredible ladies who I have the privilege of interviewing are very oftentimes recommending some really incredible business books that have completely shifted how they run their companies? Well, just for being a listener and just for being a part of the Business Women Rock community, you are able to have a totally free book completely on me. All you have to do is go to bizwomenrock.com forward slash perks and go click on the link to Audible and you will get your very first downloadable audiobook for free, no strings attached, okay? Let's go ahead and get into the story today because this is a really great one. My guest today is Carrie Block, who is the founder of EarthKind. EarthKind makes some really cool agriculturally based products. The very first of which, and probably the most well known, is a product called Fresh Cab, which is a non lethal product that's available to farmers and gardeners and just about anyone who has any issues with rodents, rats, mice, anything like that. And it's a way to be able to actually repel them from not actually being in those areas that you don't want them to be in without actually killing them. Carrie has built a pretty darn lucrative business off of this product. Her cumulative sales since 2007 are upwards of $40 million. This is an incredible business story and Carrie really does a great job of kind of opening up the curtains to how her business runs, how she even invented this idea in the first place and what she had to go through in order to build the company. So sit back, turn up the volume, the interview starts now. Carrie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be able to have a conversation with you today. You have such an incredible story and one that is so unique and in the agricultural industry, which is a little unique when we start talking about entrepreneurship. Um, that's not one that we always hear about, although it's such a, a huge space for um, for business. And so I'm so excited to hear about your story about how you started your company and how you've built it. So let's start at the beginning. You started your company initially in 1993, but can you give us a little bit of a background as to kind of what was happening before you actually started your company? What was your life like? What did, what did things look like for you? Sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to. I was a child that lived a lot of different places. I went to a different school every year of my life up through high school, believe it or not. My dad was educated as an entomologist, meaning that he studied bugs. <laughs> and due to that, we moved around a lot of different places as he worked his way up on the career ladder, so to speak. So I was born in Utah. We lived in um, New Jersey. We lived in Minneapolis area, uh, we lived in Utah, we lived in Oregon, um, and many points in between. So um, it, it, it gave me a very unique grounding, I guess, in, 
in the way one sees the world. And in many of those cases, I was a minority, um, and I, I learned a great deal from that. And I also learned a great deal from my father, who had a lot of scientist background. And so um, it kind of helps describe where where I am today and, and how I see things and how I do things in business. For instance, since he studied bugs, he always would make mention of things and you know, this did that, and I saw the I saw the role of insects and pests in in the greater um, ecology of the planet. And I saw how if we didn't have those creatures, it could basically shut down our planet. So that really it plays into why I have a business now, preventing pests from getting in the home and not killing them. Um, and there is a way to peacefully coexist with nature that. Nobody else took the time or, or saw the benefits or went through the work to do it. One of the, the great opportunities that, that I was given to have a father like that was when we lived on the East Coast, and this was in, um, we lived in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And he decided one day to take my sister and I over to Staten Island, over to Kill's Dump, which is the nation's largest dumping ground. <laughs> He wanted to show us where a way was when we throw things away. And um, talk about making an imprint on a five-year-old. <laughs> he kind of turned me into a monster at that point as far as being an environmentalist because there was miles and miles of garbage, and, and we'd have to drive up and over the hills. And at that time, I was reading books like Go Dog Go, right? And mm, so yep. the books are green, and we're going over these hills. And it was just plastic everywhere, plastic and metal and furniture. And I remember asking him as a kid, this, I don't have too many memories from being five, but this is one of them. I asked him, what happens to this? You know, is there in a way for them? And he said, there, it depends on what's in there. But like plastics, which they had sectioned in one place, said they'll, they'll never biodegrade. It could be 3,000 years. And then so he explained to me what biodegrade was, and I kind of incorporated that as a child and started mixing my own stuff because I didn't want to throw away bottles, which basically helped me to be uh, a formulator of my own products, um, which is what we do. Um, I was also entrepreneurial as a kid, too, probably like many of your listeners, you know, had the, uh, had the standard paper route, did that in uh, the Minneapolis area. I didn't want to be the one delivering, so I got a few other kids to be the delivering and started a little distribution system. That's great. Um, <laughs> it kind of fell apart, though, when the complaints came in, and I realized <laughs> it was more work to manage than it was to just do it myself. So <laughs> um, I did that, had the lemonade stand. Um, I think I did that one when I was five or six. Started making beaded necklaces out of the old cigar boxes and grandparents would give me beads and I'd sit at the door and I'd sell those and people bought them. And nowadays they have signs, no solicitation, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> my kids like me out there hawking stuff. But I always like to make something and sell it. So that's never changed throughout life. And then taking me up to 93, I ended up uh, marrying a farmer and moved out to the country for the first time in my life. And it was such a different experience from growing up in a city. And I remember looking out, and there's all this land. I mean, our closest neighbor was probably two miles. 
and I saw all the work we had to do as a farmer and all this land and we'd work all year and, you know, barely scrape by and a whole bushel of grain would sell for three or four dollars. Wow. A bushel basket, that's like um it's like a great big bucket that you see paint the paint guys use. Mm-hmm. It's about that size as a is a bushel bucket, which is how grain is measured when you bring it in. And and then I started doing the math and going, Okay, well that produces about I think it's like nine thousand loaves of bread which sell for this much. You know, so like the well the truck is getting some of the money and then there's the value added processor that that's making it that turns it into the flour and then it goes to the place to be baked into bread and it goes throughout the distribution system. And um, I, I just got an idea at that time that I wanted to do something that would help farmers and especially us, something that we could grow and then I could figure out a way to add value to it and then sell it. So where I started at that time in 93 was we, we had no money. So basically, my whole company started on a 99-cent packet of garden seeds. And so what I did was plant those seeds and, you know, watch them grow and tend to them, which was wonderful for me to do because, you know, to get that experience, everybody should garden at some, some point in their life and, and care for things. and. And I, I grew produce, and I started a farmer's market and started selling it there and did organic produce, and then I started growing dried flowers, and it was a wonderful thing, but it, it wasn't necessarily meant to be because in 95, I was at, at one of my farmer's market. I was hit by a 72-year-old lady driving a touring bike with a sidecar. What? She, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you you have to picture this. She was, you know, in her 70s, wearing black leather, long ponytail. You know, in her mind, she didn't see herself, of course. (laughs) She was more like 17 and freewheeling. Right. Well, anyway, she came through the farmer's market stand, and she didn't want to park and walk. So she drove over the neighbor's lawn and was going to park there and then get get close by (laughs) to the produce. Well, when she got close by, something I don't I don't think she thought it through, so she panicked and instead of stopping she accelerated and hit the table in front of me and basically what it did is I, w- I was standing behind her table and in front of mine and it sliced my legs. So oh, wow. um it broke my femur and I flew about, I don't know, ten or fifteen feet, landed on a bed of tomatoes. So the EMT showed up and thought I was pretty much split oh, wide no. open with, with how it looked. <laughs> looked um, like you had blood everywhere. Yeah, I got to um, the first emergency room and they said, it's too bad, we need to go to the next. I got there and they made me sign a thing and to, you know, that I could, they could remove my leg to save my life. So I signed, quickly signed it um, and they're rushing me down the hall and they said, you're lucky because yours was the best story. We have a bull rider with a broken femur. We have a motorcycle rider with a broken femur. And we have you selling organic produce. So we're going to take you first. (laughs) (laughs) The perils of of growing and selling produce. That's great. (laughs) So they did. And and when the surgery was over, the doctor came in and told me that I had died for three minutes, um, that my artery had broke. They cut my jeans and they had to slap me back together. And it really changed changed my whole life after that point I started asking much deeper questions because up to that point it 
You know, I was just a, one of those people that was busy nonstop. I couldn't stand to sit. I liked to do physical things and be out and about. And so I had about almost a year on my back and I really started questioning, okay, why am I here? And probably the biggest thing that, that changed for me at that point was the fear. Because once you die, you know, it's kind of like, well, what is there left to fear, really? Mm. It, I didn't have one of those experiences, you know, that, that some people do. But for me, it was really, I knew that I was still here. So there was a purpose for me. And so I did a lot of soul searching and thought, gosh, you know, I want to, I really want to make an impact on the environment in a positive way and, and get rid of some of the plastics that that are out there, basically create a better way. And um, I knew probably the only way to do it would be through a business or a product because I'm not a social um, person, not an activist type of a person. So that's how the whole business started that we are today really got hatched. And um, it took a number of years, you know, obviously to get to where we are, where we are now. But so I started doing the research and development and, I, I wanted to tackle the problem of rodents. So I discovered that there's about $140 million worth of products sold to kill a rodent or to, to manage a rodent. <laughs> and like 98% of everything sold is a poison. Wow. You know, and I'm like thinking, that's insane. You don't always have to kill them. You know, I was thinking, I just want to keep them out from the start. Right. I don't want to have to kill them. There's some situations where that needs to be done around food plants and because they're a public health pest, that type of thing. But So I was able to get a patent on the idea of my product now, and there's 4,000 patents for traps and kill devices, but not one for something that was natural wow. and, and, and preventive. So let's talk about that. So you went from really, you know, selling produce in early 1993, and then a couple years later realizing, okay, there's this need out there. If I can create something that's a natural way to be able to repel these mice without killing them, then that's a good niche, obviously. So talk, mm-hmm. you got it patented, but I want to talk about your process of actually inventing this product. So can you walk us through a little bit about how you actually came to find the right formula and what the process was for you know, getting it patented, just getting all the things together and, and bringing it to market. Did you have a plan for that? Can you walk us through that process of what that was like? Sure. Well, I happen to think that every good invention, there's an aha moment. You know, something mm-hmm. that happens where two or three different things intersect and, and you see a problem in a very different way. For me, that was on the farm and I was pole starting a truck. And this was like the first date on the farm with this farmer. <laughs> I had my shorts on and I had a bottle of perfume in my purse because prior to that, I was selling cosmetics at a cosmetics counter. And um, selling perfumes was one of the things. Well, perfumes gave me a horrible headache. And I was good at sales, so I'd win them and then I'd just take them home and stash them and, you know, not even use them. Well, this day I happened to bring a bottle with me. So I get in the truck and I'm pulling forward in the front um, and he's behind and we had the chains and stuff. And all of a sudden um, a mouse ran out of the floorboards, ran up my bare leg, ran into my crotch. Oh boy. (laughs) And um, yeah, I kind of freaked. I squirmed. I just 
pulled my feet off the, off the brake of the gas immediately. And by instinct, I just, I don't know, I just grabbed that bottle of perfume and I started squirting, you know? And, um, and this is a first my, date, by the way? <laughs> yes, yes. He didn't see the squirting part, but, oh, that's it, great. He, you know, he comes running up and he's like, are you okay? What's wrong? And I explained to him what was happening. And by this time, the mice had already left, um, either from the perfume or from me freaking them out. Well, he said, there's nothing you can do about it. They're, they're just a problem. They're a fact of life. There's nothing you can do. And, and so he said, I throw these mothballs in here, and that's what most people use. And I smelled, you know, I'm like, well, that's the smell that's making me sick. And he goes, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's either that or you've got a lot of damage. And they didn't really work that good. And, you know, I looked at the labels and looked what was in them, and I just didn't think much more of it. So I started bringing my bottles out. And so I was spraying all of his tractors and trucks <laughs> thinking, well, it worked. And for me, what, what I think I was thinking at that time, and then this is that aha moment, was all those years selling perfumes, it was like, you know, being in an elevator with someone with strong perfume, you can't wait for the doors to open. I mean, you're practically fainting and counting the seconds till those doors open. Well, rodents are so much smaller and their sense of smell is so much stronger than ours because they, they need that to survive. So that was really the blinding glimpse of the obvious that started the the whole thing off. And that year on my back, I really thought about that, you know, and I thought, hmm, maybe that's the deal because I was, well, to to put it in the exact terms, they really pissed me off. (laughs) They, they did a lot of damage. They chewed my, I had 400 tomato seedlings one spring and they got in right after I transplanted them, you know, after weeks of work and they ate them. And they'd get in and they'd do damage on our on our tractors, and and we had no extra money, you know. And these would be three thousand dollar bills. And they'd get in and they'd chew upholstery, and it was just it was horrible what they do. And I'm like, somebody has to do something about this. I didn't want to use the poisons around my kids and pets. And then you have to clean them up, you know. In addition, yeah. and it didn't make sense. So, and the mothballs were, you know, caused cancer and didn't work that well and I found out they weren't registered for for that use which means they didn't work because you have to have things registered which proves and assures that they're going to work so my next step at that point was to figure out what I needed to do and I thought well obviously I need to do some more research on this and find out exactly if this works how it works why it works so on and so forth and um, being around rodents all my life (laughs) because of growing up with my dad who always had little studies going on you know or conversations around that he used to work for the leading rodent lab in the in the world so I got to hear those conversations as a kid and um, I realized they couldn't see very well which you know made me jump to the next conclusion well if they can't see that's why their sense of smell is so heightened because they see with their sense of smell. And and it, it really helped me figure out that, okay, well, if you block their sense of smell, then they can't see, then they're going to start to freak out because they're all about survival. And I mean, they're not going to stay in, right. They're not going to stay there because they feel threatened. 
they're always wanting about other species for survival when they're out on their own. Humans are, are different, of course, but they, uh, they're always worried about a bigger, stronger one coming and stealing their stuff, you know, harming their babies. So they look for out-of-the-way places that they can go be undisturbed for long periods of time to make their babies, which there wasn't a product on the market that addressed those areas where they go to nest. And I thought, gosh, if I can keep them out of where you're going to go, where they're going to go to nest or where they're going to go to eat, they're not going to be a problem. They'll find somewhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And that's how the whole, really the whole concept and that got started. So after that point, I, I went to our state, who's been incredibly helpful throughout the whole thing, and, and found out who to talk to. And I found a rodent researcher um, at our state university. So um, I drove over there and met with him and talked to him and understood a little bit more. And together we, we put things down, you know, what, what was different, what was unique about my approach. Um, and then I started doing testing. We did testing on, on um, out in the field. I gave the product to farmers. <laughs> I got a grant from the state for $5,000 called the Farm Diversification Grant, and I, I bought a whole bunch of, um, of stuff. And this is after I'd tinkered with it myself for a few years, which narrowed it down to what I thought would work the best and what smelled the best. Because there was one other thing that worked, but it smelled horrible. So I knew that wouldn't sell. So I, I went around to all the implement dealerships in our area, and I, I gave them the product, which um, it's like um, old-fashioned sachet, if you will, about the size of a fist. Originally, we were packing them in little cloth drawstring bags. And I'd give them to them and say, put this in your most rat-infested, stinkiest, combine over the winter and let me know if it works well by the next spring we had distributors and wow. <laughs> we sold about thirty thousand dollars worth of product because it saved them so much money and hassle and it smelled good it actually worked so people are always amazed at first especially farmers they're so skeptical you know, which is a very strong customer base for us. They don't like to waste their money. You know, they right. don't want to be ripped off, and they have enough hassles to deal with. So it was really satisfying coming up with something that um, actually solved the problem for them because I've had those same hassles. So that type of thinking is what kept me going when all the mini roadblocks were there, which there was a lot. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what were some of those roadblocks or some of the challenges that you had, especially in those first couple of years, really getting out of the door? Well, you know, one of the ones that's probably near and dear to everybody listening is, um, you know, the belief in yourself. Because I always had this doubt inside, going, well, what if it isn't going to work? Well, what if, what if, you know, there's always a thousand what ifs when when you want to do something, I think especially when you're, you're right, you know, it's, right. it's like they, they double up to, to give you that backbone and that courage that you need to go forward. So, you know, I had a lot of that and it's really hard when you're an inventor in the beginning to describe something to someone when their whole history is a hundred percent different than what you perceive <laughs> describing, mm-hmm. you know, they're used to killing and I'm saying, well, no, 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 this is easier. You don't even have to worry about it. This will just prevent them. And they're like, oh, 
so you mean they'll they eat it and they die and it's <laughs> not dangerous? No, you know. So that that was probably one um, roadblock. You know, I had to really learn to communicate and to put things to put facts before people and to make things crystal clear, which helps. You know, no matter what size your business is, whether you're an inventor, an entrepreneur, or CEO, you know, the company like I am today. The other roadblock was the regulatory um, that I needed to go through because rodents are a public health risk pest. And the, the people that play in this game, they're very large companies. They have very deep pockets to do research and development. And the testing required to get a product registered with the federal EPA, I was told it would be about $2 million. Whoa. Yeah. And and I was actually told, you really probably don't want to do this because nine chances out of ten, they're not going to accept it. And, um, you know, that was one of those defining moments because, you know, we really didn't have the money, right, to do this. And I'm thinking, hmm. So at this point, I'm thinking, maybe I should just license it out, you know. And I contacted a company, and they, oh, this is stupid. It will never work. And I realized, you know, again, I drew back on that time on my back. I'm like, okay, well, a, a person can do anything you set your mind to, right? Right. If, if you just, if you stay focused and, you know, I, I believe in prayer and, you know, a positive attitude and, you can make anything happen. It might not be overnight. It you know, might happen in some time, but I, I just took that journey one step at a time. I got grants to help pay for it. I did a lot of the technical work myself. I went to our state and I said, who's, who's going to be my best consultant out there to help me through this? Um, we did that. We were rejected at first. Um, we went back and they still said, no, we still need more data. We had to go back three times and do more testing, which, you know, put a lot of time on it. So the tests that they do, you need to be by a certified testing agency. You have to, it's just very, I could tell you so many funny stories like that. You had to get an animal welfare committee involved and the EPA has to check the protocols. It's very intensive because what we were doing changed history. Um, so it was a whole new process for them looking at a, a bio control versus a, a toxic control. So we had to develop a protocol at our cost for them to use, you know, in the future. And ultimately, when our product became registered, they and it was proven, so I think they wanted to be extra, extra safe and make sure that all the due diligence was done and that, that it actually worked reliably. Then they were able to move forward to to um, take off the most toxic rodent poisons on the shelf. And so naturally, the big companies fought back. So that's been another obstacle. You know, we're, they're still in that process. It's been going on for years, you know, saying this isn't right. You know, you have to kill them. That natural isn't reliable, so on and so forth. So that's, that's another one that we're going through. Um, another one of the barriers is, and this is a big one, especially with products, we had a single product. And getting that on a shelf is almost next to impossible because the stores want to buy from somebody that's already got a line of products and makes no more time. So I had to figure out how to do that. 
Um, today we're in, I think it's over 20,000 retailers now. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah, so we're in John Deere's, a, a very good customer of ours. All the implement dealerships around Ace Hardware were on their shelf and all the Ace Hardwares across the nation. And if, if for anybody listening, if, if they're off, you just ask for it and they, they get it in. We're in, so we're in the hardware stores, Tractor Supply, RV, Marine, Auto. And this all started really just with your Fresh Cab product, which is the, the rodent yeah. repellent. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. And today we're adding on to that because our customers keep asking us for other things. And um, so we're, we're very good at listening to our customers. But so getting product on the shelf was a huge roadblock. So what I did is I, I personally went out to the stores one by one and, and told them my story. And they couldn't, they just couldn't turn me down, you know, <laughs> when I got there. And I said, I promise this will sell. And if if it doesn't, I'll buy it back. And wow. I did that for the first year and it sold. And, and our return rate is less than 1%. Um, and it still is today, which is almost then unheard of. So that helped us get more stores. You, so people starting out, if you have one success, you can really use that because you can go to another place and say, you know, we was successful here and they suggested that I come to you. And then it's it's much easier to close that sale if you use a referral than a testimony like that. So another roadblock was how do we get it sold now that it's on the shelves? Because I didn't know anything about marketing when I started. You know, so I called it Fresh Cab. And people go, Fresh Cab, what does that mean, right? <laughs> well, for me, it meant it keeps your tractors fresh. You don't have to come back and they're damaged from mice and all stinky, right? <laughs> but communicating that that was a, a real roadblock so we started using social media and education in the, in the real early years and now today i just saw a report yesterday and we have over 85 percent of the voice in our category if you type anything online or look at the cloud and all the conversations that are happening so we were one of the early doctors of social media and it's helped us today you know because we're kind of leading leaving the way as far as that goes, but it enabled us to talk to our customers and, and help them solve their problems before we even mentioned the name Fresh Cab, right? That's great. So we'd write articles, but, you know, do you have problems with mice or mice getting in, whatever, and, and we'd make a video. You know, we have Facebook. We do all of those kind of things, and it's a great value add because customers can learn how to take care of their problem before it starts. So, you know, that's been been great for us because educational marketing is probably the the most expensive thing to do. And it takes a long, long time to change a behavior. But it sounds like you had to do that from the get-go in order to, because you introduced an entirely different paradigm, an entirely different way of thinking in pest control really for the agricultural industry and those, you know, those of us not in the agricultural space. And so, um, yeah, you really had to do the education first so that people knew what your product was and how to get it to them. So, yeah. And, and it's turned out to be a blessing all these years later, I guess. So I, I encourage anybody listening to know that if you make a mistake, sometimes that's a really good thing because it turns out later to be something extremely valuable like this so we had the name fresh cab well the stores first told me it's never going to sell it doesn't even have a decent name 
and it's a different color than everything on the shelf. Well, it's kind of funny. Lo and behold, now you walk down our aisle and almost everything is the same color as our box. And we had to update it to even <laughs> stay ahead of the pack. So so I encourage anybody listening, you know, to, to trust your gut and, and stick with the, the why um, behind. Because that, for us, if there's anything that's really gotten us through all of those roadblocks and helped us to, to get to this point and have such high loyalty as we've never changed. We've never faltered. We've never went for the next biggest, best thing, that type of thing. We've just stayed our course. One of my sales reps calls me Carrie the plotter. (laughs) We just, you know, plot along and, and do what we feel is right for our customer and help them solve their problem. Um, In fact, for customer service, and this is a good tip for people too, we, if, if the product doesn't work, 90% 90% of the time they didn't didn't use it properly. So what we'll do is we'll give them a disc or a refund and we'll help we'll tell them, you know, how how to get over the problem. Could we tell them, you know, let's solve your problem first. The refund that's that's guaranteed, so don't even worry about it. Well then we'll we follow up and then we'll send them another free free product. Oh, that's great. <laughs> to give them incentive to now, you know, take the education you gave them and use it. Exactly. And then people will write in and they give so many referrals and they're like loyal for life because they know we care. And they go, well, it must be a good product and a good company because you couldn't afford to do this for everybody. With our returns less than, I think they were half a percent. And we, you know, don't ask any questions. If they don't like it, we feel they should get their money back. But getting, getting them educated on how to use it is, you know, really important. Now, I want to jump into um, some of the elements that you've had to manage in order to scale your business. So obviously, you went from literally knocking on all of the store's doors in order to get you in and on the shelf to you have 12 full-time employees, and at any given moment, you have about 45 to 50 other either part-time or contracted workers working for you. A big chunk of that group of that 45 to 50 group are people with disabilities. You have a very special incorporated way to provide jobs for those with disabilities that are very integral to how your company is run. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. One of the things important to me from the beginning when I started and still today is that people love their jobs. I don't I don't want to work with people that don't love what they do um, and that don't love our customers. So um, hiring the handicap was something we did back in the beginning because one of my employees said, have you ever thought of using the handicap? You know, they like to do a repetitive thing each day. They're not going to get bored. They're going to be loyal. They're going to love their work because it's better than somebody dumping out buttons on a table and then they sort them out, put them in, and then they do it again. And I thought, I heard that story and I was like, oh, my that's terrible. I need to do something. So we tried it and it worked splendidly. You know, it's not all handicapped people can do it because they have to have a um, attention to detail and be dexterous. Um, but it's, it's a perfect job for them because they like to do the same thing every day. They like to know what's coming. They, like, they love to feel like they're a part of something bigger. And it just is like lift, lifted our entire uh, soul of our company when they came in. It's just 
I could tell you so many wonderful stories, and everybody, once once they meet them and they see it in their factory, they see it in action, they go, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. Mm. So throughout all this time, in the beginning, everything was done by hand, and we had a, we developed it, our business model was very much a cottage industry where we'd send things out and people would make it in their homes and bring it back. So we transitioned to bringing that in-house using handicap. And then as we grew, we started adding automation. And now we're to the point of being fully automated. And we're going to take up like 7,000 square foot in the, in the factory. That's great. But we've been able to build our automation with the handicapped people. So we build it and then we design it um, so it's easy for them to work with and their supervisors get involved. And the state of Minnesota has you know, worked with us as well. And it's wonderful because they're as productive and we, we don't say, oh, that's the handicapped and that's the regular workers. They're totally integrated into what we do. You know, we have weekly lunches and they just, everybody's together in the factories. So congratulations on that. And I know you've won a lot of awards for that program. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And you know, we haven't used any grants. We haven't done anything like that to do it. I I guess I didn't even think of it. Um, And our handicapped workers get the same level of pay as any temp worker that comes in. They're doing the same thing. That's wonderful. So I have this question for you, Carrie. How have you grown as the leader of your company and as a business person? (laughs) That is just such a great question. That's probably... One of the hardest things, you know, what's the hardest thing in life you have to do? Some great person, wise person said, you know, scaling the mountain of self. Well, that, for me, the the um, growing into a leadership role has really been a faith journey and very much a spiritual walk for me as much as anything. In, in the beginning, as an inventor, you, you know, you do it all yourself and it's very technical and very black and white. And then you move into, there's there's a lot of fear around bringing something to market. There's a thousand reasons that it's not going to work. Everybody will tell you that. So I really, at that point, had to learn to trust my own instincts and, and, and set a course of action, you know, baby steps at a time, but a very defined, consistent, focused approach to be able to execute in order to make that dream a reality. And for me, it was the why that I drew on every time it got tough. You know, I thought of all those farmers swearing like I was and then tears going, I can't pay for this. How am I going to do this? You know, and it helped me have the strength to, um, to go on. And then the next level that happens is, um, you start hiring people, Right. And again, it's a leap of faith because all of a sudden, well, I need computers for these people. I need insurance for these people. I need a building, you know, and all of a sudden you're in debt to do that, which is really um, another big leap of faith because it's like, well, if I don't believe in this, nobody else will. And um, there's a little mental game that goes on there. Um, and that's where I think coaching is so effective and listening to programs like you have, it's just so incredibly valuable to entrepreneurs. And I wish that stuff would have been around when I was at that stage because I just had books to read and I did it, but 
that um, seeing when other people have done it, it kind of helps you keep your energy and your faith infused um, and then getting those practical tips. So I went to the SBA and I went to SCORE and said, can you help me with this? I don't know how to put together a budget and a balance sheet and a P&L. I don't know how to even build a, my QuickBooks accounting system. You know, so they helped me do that. And I went to the Women's Business Center, and I was like, "Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to sell this stuff. Um, I don't know how to market it." You know, and and so they helped me. Um, I went to a trade show and saw how all of that stuff worked. Um, they helped me with pricing to figure out how do I price it to make a profit. And then it became, how do I make it, right? So it was a very tactical approach at that point that, that you need to do, as well as learning to lead others. But it was setting the direction instead of doing all the work myself. Once the business got past probably a million in revenues, um, I'd say, which maybe one in, I don't, I don't, you may know, maybe five out of 100 make it that far. Um, it's, it's rare because there's another jump that happens at that point where you, you really have to become strategic or <laughs> you can lose your butt quick. You know, you got to project out a few years and think, you know, how, it's, it's more of building at that point. It's like, okay, I know this product definitely works. There's definitely a market for it. How are we going to increase our distribution and go national? You know, who do I need to hire? How do I need to structure it? So then it became about the systems and the processes and the structure, which is just a whole different strata above, you know, the previous strata. Um, so, which I love doing that and learning about it. So today we have some of the most state-of-art systems. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's kind of cool, and there's the stuff on our website. But we're being featured for our um, ERP provider, and we're next to Pottery Barn. And wow. Smith and Hawken, and we use the same systems which we built. And so I invested in those um, because I believed, you know, I believed and I was visionary and I knew we could get there with a good plan. And then it, it got into the next level of um, true leadership where, you know, communicating the vision and the strategy to a management or a leadership team, you know, which is where we're at now, where they basically run the company. I, um, you know, work with our key customers, decide which products are the best that are going to come in, um, you know, where I think we can grow. And that was probably the biggest leap to date because, you know, you, you want to be a leader, people follow. But um, it's very much about energy um, at this point. You know, each day I need to to, to really bring that energy and um you know, I, I hire people that I go to, that I'd go to the end of the earth for, which I think, um, you know, really, really helps there. I love where I'm at now. It's, it's probably the most fun that I've ever had. What I gathered from that story was that you actively reached out and continue to reach out for resources that would help you. So you mentioned books. What books have really made an impact on how you run your company? Well, some of my, my top books, and I wrote about this on my blog <laughs> because it's, to me it's just so important. Um, Patrick Lencioni is, is one of my favorites. Um, so for making that transition from just delegator to, to coach and leader, 
I really found value in pretty much all of his books. Um, and they're all about aligning others and accountability and building trust. So that's a great one. Um, Think and Grow Ridge by Napoleon Hill is another one that I've really liked over the years. And I, I've never read the whole thing cover to cover, but I'll just pick out a a page or two when I need some inspiration. And it, it is one of the best-selling business books of all time, but I think it was written in like the 1800s. So um, it's just kind of a different and unique find. Other than that, I've probably read, I've got, <laughs> it's kind of funny, I've got two different places that I have books, and I actually have them in pillars because that's how important um, that is to me. So they're like set up in pillars on each side of my desk where I'm at in both places. That's great. <laughs> it's like the pillars of knowledge, you know, that it helped me um, get there. Probably one of my favorite now, and I'm just looking at it now, Norm Brodsky wrote this, um, and it's called Street Smarts, an all-purpose toolkit for entrepreneurs. Hmm. I just, I'm going to write him and tell him that I think that's probably, um, you know, one of the best that I've read. Another recent one is um, Jack Stack, The Great Game of Business, and I got a chance to meet him this year at the Inc. conference. And I loved his approach to ownership um, management. And we do very much the same thing internally, but he was able to help us. Maybe we can take it up a little bit. But because we teach and we train our employees how to run the company. And um, it's, it's so valuable to do that because then they take part in it like they're, like they're owners. Carrie, I really want to wind down this conversation by asking you, what is your vision for EarthKind? And really, what are in the years ahead for you? Our mission at EarthKind is to preserve the good and prevent the rest. And we do that as a product manufacturer of uh, natural proactive solutions that protect the spaces in which we live, work, and play. So the future of my company um, and the way I see it, and I've I've done... um, I can see it way out into the future, and you guys, you might laugh. Maybe when this played back in five years, people will go, "Well, geez, it's it's really true." But um, <laughs> what what I try to do is look ahead and, and envision what I think would be heaven on earth, right? And that's where my products come in. I don't think you need to kill things, you know. To, to, to eat or, or for pests. To me, it's, it's all about um, preserving the good and preventing the rest, and that's something that I want to take out into the world. I see unlimited opportunities um, for that, so I see, I see us becoming a billion-dollar company because we've basically created a new category and a, a whole new way of thinking about property and home maintenance. Um, and some of the things that we're doing now that's going to help us reach that vision. Remember I mentioned the baby steps that you have to do. Um, it's, it's not good just to talk about it or to think about it. You have to do. But we have um, a quarterly newsletter that comes out on um, home maintenance and preventive maintenance, in, whether you're in a rural, urban, or suburban um, place. will help people really remind them okay, it's time to change your um, battery, you know, it's time to change your furnace filter. It's time to, um, 
you know, recoat the driveway, whatever. We have those preventive tips. Um, we're taking that out into stores, too. So when a customer walks in and it's a seasonal change, um, the stores can give them a, a free printout from us that helps save them a lot of headaches and, and time and hassle. So they don't need to wait until a problem happens and either overspend to get somebody in or have to use a chemical. So those are the things that are going to help us um, get to that place. So, I mean, our products are really just kind of a vehicle for what, what we're ultimately doing, which is um, creating a kinder earth for everybody. And the customers that we do have, they, they like it. And uh, I heard some wise advice. It's um, love them, hate them, but don't tolerate them, you know, in, in marketing. So the customers that we do have and are on board very much share um, share that, that same holistic, proactive view. And our, our products um, have to be practical and useful, you know, <laughs> for us to survive. So that's... Um, kind of our, our, our practical thing that we do and the higher order benefit is making a kinder earth for all. So our employees get on board with that. Our customers get on board with that. Um, fortunately, we're in a time and space now where <laughs> it's uh, politically correct and a lot of people are really thinking about their health and the health of the planet and, and wanting to do business with companies like us. Carrie, I really want to thank you for being on the show with us today because I just think that your story is so unique. You're full of passion and you're full of love, I think, is is what I got most out of this conversation is that you just truly have a love for those who can benefit from the product and service that you guys provide and uh, and really for the larger purpose that you guys are doing it is really to make an impact on the industry and on on the earth so congratulations to you uh very very proud of all the success that you have had and that you are going to continue having and uh i just really am so humbled that you're here on the show with us today so thank you so much for your time well, thank you so much for this fantastic show and giving me the opportunity to share with others. You know, every single one of these interviews always seems to teach me something new. I always feel like I walk away more more often than not actually with about 10 or 20 things that I can now take and use in my business. I hope you got a handful of things that you can take away too and use in your company and in your business journey. Thank you so much for being here. It really means the world to me that you are listening. If you loved it, the best thing that you could do is just share it with one of your girlfriends, just another really great businesswoman who you think would really benefit from hearing these stories. And don't forget to go to bizwomenrock.com forward slash 22 to get all the show notes for my interview with Carrie today. Thank you again for being here. I'll see you on the next show.